great to see that we have two rows of chairs here now. People are starting to come back in and be in person and I just, I love it. It's great to see faces again. Um, it's interesting as we have different teachers who approach the book of the, uh, the books of the Bible and offer you insight because we all have different perspectives that we come to the Bible with. We all have different gifts that God has given us, um, different ways that we see things through our experiences. And what I'd like to do today, I want to offer you hopefully some life advice. But one of the things that I always try to do when I share is offer a little insight into scripture. I hope it would enrich the reading of scripture. And so as we look at this uh, section of scripture, it's actually 1 Peter, and it's chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. It's basically the end of um, chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And I want to refresh us a little bit as to where we are in this book. Peter's writing to five provinces of Rome. It's in what we call Asia Minor. It's in Turkey today. And these five provinces, they covered approximately 129,000 square miles. It's about the size of Montana. That makes this letter written to the largest geographical area of any letter in the New Testament. So Peter is speaking to a very large amount of people. You're going to have so many different demographics that he has to address in this letter that make up the church. And he's writing to them what we'll find at the close of his letter is he's writing from Babylon. Babylon, throughout the history of the Hebrew people, was identified as the heart of darkness. It traces all the way back to the Tower of Babel and the rejection of God. And so Peter says he's writing from Babylon. Typically in the New Testament, Babylon refers to the city of Rome the center of persecution, where Nero reigned and persecuted Christians. So the author of this letter is actually in the heart of darkness, and he's reaching out to where people might have a little bit easier than him, and he's finding the ability to encourage them in this letter. It's amazing how far Peter has come from a disciple who rejected Christ. He denied Christ to a slave girl. And now he's leading the church in the heart of darkness, in the center of evil. So he's writing this letter to these churches in what is now Turkey. And what we're going to find in verse 8 is he says, finally. What this means is he's about to wrap up his letter. He's getting into his conclusions. He's going to wrap up many things that he's been talking about. And first he's going to tell us in verse 8 how we interact as a church. He just went through, if you look at chapter 2 and leading into chapter 3, he went through some specific cases of how to interact in the church. And now he's going to say, finally, this is how everybody should act. And he gives us five words. The five words are harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Your translations may use different words than these but it, Peter was a Hebrew, and he often made his ministry directed at Hebrews. One of the popular ways that Hebrews wrote, that, 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 that the Jewish people would write, is they would use what's called a chiastic poem, or a chiastic method, 
We in the West, we conclude with the best. We save the best for last. If you're going to watch a fireworks show tonight, the finale is where it's at. The Hebrews didn't write this way. They put what they wanted you to focus on in the middle. And then they built everything else around that. So what this means is that the middle term, affectionate, is what Peter wants to draw your attention to. Affectionate in this is brotherly love. It refers to men and women, and it brings to mind a household. He says you shouldn't be just this body of individuals, but the church should consider itself a household, a loving household. As you expand out from his center, you're going to find out that on one side of affectionate, he has sympathetic. On the other side, he has compassionate. The way chiastic poetry works is these are parallel terms. And so he's telling you to be sympathetic and compassionate. Sympathetic is to have empathy. The Greek word for compassionate here, the ancient world, they thought emotions were in the gut. Because that's where you feel things. And so what he's saying by compassionate here is that we should feel for people so strongly for each of us that it's in our gut. It's not just a mental, yes, I know you're in my body of Christ. I know you're in my local church body. And so I, I care about you and I see you every Sunday. He's saying you should be like a house. You should care for each person in that body. Like they're your sibling. And you should feel such compassion for them that it's in your gut. Expanding out further, his first term and his last term, harmonious and humble. He says that we should be harmonious. The word actually means somewhat like-minded. Like we should be in agreement. He is writing to the largest geographical area of any New Testament letter. Huge differences in demographics that you're going to have attending the church. How do these people become harmonious? How do you get people to be like-minded? That's a dilemma in our country today. Look at Christianity. In my opinion, one of the first things you do is you center them on the person of Christ. If you put Christ before politics, Christ before opinions, you are centered on a person, and you can begin there. But I think Paul's last word that parallels harmonious also gives us an answer, and it's humble. The term humility here actually means to serve one another. It doesn't mean some serve the leader, some serve someone else. It means you serve each other. And so I'm making myself subservient to you, Paul, and at the same time, you're making yourself subservient to me. And we're both humbling ourselves to each other. And it's a cycle that you get into that I believe creates harmony because you're not putting yourself over another. So this first verse opens with how to live in the church. And the center of how to live in the church is that word affectionate. You live as if you're a family. You live as if you're siblings. Everything I have is yours. Everything you have is everyone else's. It's a family who shares. Now, as Peter continues, he moves on. And he's going to say, how do we now live in life in general? And this is verse 9. And he says, in life, you do not return evil for evil. 
The Greek word for evil here is kakos. What it means is to disregard, to hold little respect. Now, Peter's writing to an honor-shame culture. And in an honor-shame culture, there was only so much honor to go around. There was not unlimited honor. You were always trying to gain more honor from someone else by shaming them so you gained honor. If you had an interaction where then you were shamed, someone took your honor. And you need to go get more honor. There's a limited amount of honor out there. And so if someone disrespected you, if someone had no respect for you, they shamed you. Peter's saying, don't shame them back. Don't fight back. He goes on to say this as he expands on what evil for evil means in this. He says insult for insult. Again, I looked at the politics that we've lived out in this nation. How many insults have flown back and forth from all sides of political parties? He doesn't mean you can't stick up for yourself. He means you don't look at someone as less valuable than you. You don't lack respect for who that person is, even if they disrespect you. Instead, he says, what we need to do is bless people who do evil to us. It doesn't mean we bless them with money, we bless them with our time. This word bless actually means we want the blessing of God on their lives. How hard is that? Someone disrespects you and you say, God, I hope you bless them with everything. What if, I want the blessing. I don't want to give it to the person who's disrespecting me. I'm doing good, I'm suffering, give me the blessing. But Peter's saying no. You disarm evil by asking for God's blessing on them. Why do we do this? He goes on to say, because we are inheriting a blessing. He quotes from Psalm as you go into verse 10 through 12. And he says, if you love life, if you're righteous, God's eyes are on you. Those who do evil are opposed to God. We don't do evil because we're not opposed to God. We are set up to inherit a blessing. And that calls us to bless others. So he's told us, how do we live in the church? Harmoniously, humbly. Then he goes on to life. How do we live in life? We don't repay evil for evil. And he asks then this rhetorical question. This has been a dilemma for me. In verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're devoted to good? I'd like to say nobody, <laughs> you know? But there are people that are going to harm you. The answer to Peter's question here is generally not as many people. If you do good, you're going to disarm many people. Even the secular world knows this. They say you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. The secular world understands this. And so Peter, he acknowledges, Who's, who wants to harm you if you do good? Well, it's going to happen. So he goes on in verse 14 to say, if you do suffer. So he doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer at all. There's not going to be anybody that won't harm you. They shouldn't want to, is what his question says. If you do good, they shouldn't want to harm you. But there's still going to be some people out there who do. And that is what this church was undergoing that he was writing to. And so he says, 
Remember, we're in an honor-shame culture. And he just told people, let people shame you. They're going to do evil to you, which he insinuates as they're going to insult you. You're, in the eyes of the people, in the eyes of your culture, you are going to lose honor. But he says, but if you suffer for doing right, you are blessed. This word blessed actually means honor. If you remember back in Acts, there's one of the stories in Acts that talks about these people have turned the world upside down. And this is what Peter's saying. The economy of God works different. You're going to be shamed in the world, but when you suffer for what is right, that's how you get honor in God's economy. Because people want honor. And then he goes on to say, if I'll jump ahead for a second, in verse um, 16, by your good conduct, you shame them. So he's still working in an honor-shame economy, and he's saying God's economy, it works different. In an honor-shame culture, there's always a fight for honor. Always. And he says it works different in God's economy. But he tells us in verse 14, do not be terrified of them, those who persecute you, or be shaken. Easier said than done. But he gives an answer. How do I do that? In verse 15, he says, you set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. When you make Christ Lord, it refocuses your attention and it puts you into this economy that he's talking about. You can suffer and you get honor. And he tells us then what we should be ready to do in suffering. Guide others. When people see us suffering and they see us gaining honor, they're going to ask, how do you do this? What is this hope that you have? What is this that you have in you that you're not like the world fighting everyone? And he says, be ready to guide them. Give them an answer. Bring them to what you have. And he concludes with, it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Honestly, the Bible says God makes the sun rise on the, good, on the just and the unjust. And he makes the rain fall. And ultimately, whether you're good or evil, you're going to suffer in this life. This life simply has suffering. But you may as well suffer for doing good then, right? If you're going to suffer regardless... Let's do good and let's gain honor in the economy that matters. God's economy. And he explains why it's better to suffer for doing good. It's because that's the example that our hero set for us. He starts in verse 18. Because Christ suffered for our sins. Christ was the most just person. And he suffered for the unjust. I'm here saying, this person is not treating me right. They're acting unjustly. Why should I suffer? Can't I respond to them? And he's saying Christ didn't. He's saying Christ suffered for the unjust. And it brings us to, it brings us to God because Christ suffered for us. If we then suffer, he just said, people are going to ask, what is this hope? You can then bring them to God. 
part of how he closes is motivation. Because this is easy to read, but it's hard to live out. With the church, we can see it's so hard to be harmonious and loving. With life, it is hard not to return evil for evil, insult for insult. With suffering, it is hard to just take it. And he encourages you that this is how you can do it. Christ has won a victory. Here's where I want to give you a little insight into the Greek really quick. I, I hope this might enlighten some scripture for you. He says Christ was put to death in the flesh. But he's made alive in the spirit. The spirit is likely the Holy Spirit is what he's speaking of. In the Holy Spirit, he then goes and preaches to the spirits in prison. There's been a lot of debate as to who these spirits are, what these spirits are. If you do some research, the only way that these spirits in prison is used is to refer to the fallen angels who rebelled against God. The Jewish people understood these angels to be the most powerful enemy of God. And Peter is saying, Christ was victorious, and he went to God's most powerful enemy who were locked up, and he said, I, I'm the most powerful cosmic being there is. So you can trust that the one who can go to God's most powerful enemies and can declare his superiority has your life in his hands. And there's something exciting that Peter gives at the end of this. He talks about baptism. And he relates baptism back to the time where the Bible talks about fallen angels. Noah and his family were saved through a symbolic baptism, the flood. He then says, we can join in Christ's victory. In the time of Noah, evil was defeated. And Noah came out on top. Christ has now come out on top for us. And we can recognize that through baptism. We like to join into so many, I'll call them rituals in society. Today, it's the ritual of fireworks and barbecues. Um, birthdays, it's the ritual of cakes. We have these things that we like to do to celebrate the New Year's Day. We love to celebrate on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, we, Christmas, all these things we like to do. It's motivating. It's motivating to go join a New Year's party and usher in a new year. We've made it. Baptism is that for the Christian. You get to do something like a New Year's Eve party. You get to do something like the 4th of July fireworks. You get to do something that is motivating and you enter into the greatest victory in the history. We like other things and often the church argues about oh, do we need baptism? Does baptism actually save us? What do we do with baptism? I'd like to say we, in our lives we do so many other rituals. We go in for promotion ceremonies at work. We do so many ceremonies. Why would a believer not want to do a ceremony celebrating the greatest victory in history? and entering in and recognizing, I am part of Christ's victory that reverses the economy and brings me honor when I suffer. I want to wrap this up. I didn't want to go too long. I know last weekend was hot. Maybe nobody got out too much. And so we want to make up for it this weekend. 
we have barbecues, we have fireworks. So what I'd like to do is just recap with this. Peter is closing with a general idea of how should I live? And he's saying with the church, you live by loving those around you. People sitting in the pew next to you, your family. With life, you live by blessing others. And in suffering, you live by guiding others because you always have an answer ready for why you have hope. It isn't easy. It's a battle. But he goes on to say Christ has won the war. The most powerful enemies of God are in prison. And Christ has such authority that he already went to them and said, I am the king. I have been made Lord. And I sit at the right hand of God. Christ was given that authority to go speak his power over God's over what the Hebrews consider to be God's most powerful enemies. And this is encouragement. Peter's saying, this is how you do it. Christ has already won the battle. He's already reversed the economy. So what I call you today, is the church in general, and this may not be each person here, but Peter's writing to the largest church group, church group in the New Testament. And so whoever's watching, whoever listens to this later, get hope. Recognize that Christ has won over death. Paul says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, if we don't believe in Christ's victory, then what is our faith? Why, why are we suffering? Why do we do this? So there's faith in that. And I have faith that Christ has won. And so doing that, he has brought us together as family. He has made it so I can bless other people who would otherwise disrespect me. And he's made it so that I can suffer, knowing that my suffering may lead other people to God, and it brings me honor. I hope you guys have a great 4th of July. I hope you guys go out and celebrate, enjoy this cooler weather <laughs> than last weekend. And I just pray that the church in this nation can recognize what Peter here is writing. Amen. I'm going to bring Nels back up. Why don't you stand with me, church? And one of the things I love about being a part of our church um, is that I get to receive, you know, and I get to receive from someone like Jason. And... Um, that was probably one of the best sermons I've heard in that passage of scripture um, my whole life. That was really, really good. So I want to take a pause here because it was that impactful to me. Uh, that verse, I think it was verse 15, to revere Christ as Lord. That's like the how on this passage becomes real in your life. You're not going to be able to live out that passage today or tomorrow. But little by little over your life, more and more, I believe that. And so I want to just take a pause here and give an opportunity for some repentance. Uh, what a hard year you've been through. Um, reading that passage of scripture, loving people who hurt you or shame you, respecting people who disrespect you is almost impossible. Doesn't it feel impossible? But the work of God is to do the impossible and to transform your heart. And I just want to ask you to take a moment, and if you're listening to this later on the podcast, even now, take a moment wherever you're at. 
And just to make Jesus the Lord of your heart again. To revere him as the Lord. Not being right as the Lord. Not having comfort in a life without suffering as the Lord. Not people who like you. Not the affirmation of everybody on your Facebook friends or whatever. But him as the Lord. Would you just take a pause for everyone in this community again? I don't care how long you've been following Jesus. Just revere him as Lord again. Suffering and adversity is an, really a gift from God that he allows it. It's a gift because it allows us to see that which is actually Lord of our lives. And then to be able to come to him with this knowledge, this awareness, I'll use that word, the awareness to then come to him and to ask him for healing and help. And so wherever you're at and whatever's been going on in your life, would you just take a moment to just make him the Lord again, to revere him as the Lord, the most powerful, the most supreme. Not any influence, not any other fear, not any other person, not any other system, not any, any other economy or the way of this world, not even shame and honor culture, that he would be the Lord today in your life. Father, as a community, we just come to you, Lord, and we repent of all these other things you've showed us that have taken that secret place, that most special place, that highest place in our hearts. And we say today, Lord, we turn and we want you to revere you as Lord. Jesus, be our King again. Be the King of our hearts again today. And Lord, as we re-emerge into this world and re-go back to work in person maybe or go back to activities or go back to being together with people or go back to restaurants or go back to church. Lord, we don't want to be the same. We don't want to fear uh, the shame of this world. We don't want to fear rejection, Lord. We want to do what's right in your eyes, in your eyes alone. We want to welcome suffering because we do right for you, no matter the cost or the price that we will pay. Remind us as a community, it's exhausting, God, to do the right thing. It, it really is. It seems so hard. But Lord, we know that our path is surrender and that's our, where our strength comes from is surrender. And so as the community of faith, as your people, we surrender and we open the door for your strength to do the impossible in our lives, to be harmonious, to be humble, to be affectionate, to love each other, Lord. So we just bring this to you, Lord, and we say yes and we believe and we look forward in hope to healing that happens and that you offer in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.